Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 132nd edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf. And I will be joined, as usual, by my partner in crime from the East Coast of the U.S., Gary Action Jackson. And we appreciate you guys supporting us. You know, it means the world to us that you all tune into our show each and every week. The month of May was great for us. We had a great run there. Of course, we had the two live reviews of Metallica kicking off their M72 World Tour in Amsterdam. It was great to be back in Amsterdam and and great to have the opportunity to, to share the highlights with you there. And having Scott Holiday of Rival Sons on was fantastic. Such a cool guy. Such a badass new album, Dark Fighter, which is out now. You guys, if you're looking for new music and it's hard for you to find it, don't hesitate. Go get Dark Fighter by Rival Sons. I think you'll dig it. And you can listen to our episode 130 when we talk with him about to ring and about the new album, Super Guy, and just glad that Rival Sons is in the rotation for us now. Of course, after that, we had a great talk with Terry Reed and George K. of Cosmic American Derelict. So we're on a bit of a roll here with some great guests and some great shows, and we thank you for supporting us. And we think you're going to like what we have in store for you here today, because today we have a fellow podcaster on, but also an author, an author of a book that maybe you might overlook if you just saw it in the bookstore or saw it scrolling through Amazon.com. But I'm telling you, if you're a rock history fan, if you're a rock technology fan, you're going to like The Tormato Story by Kevin Mulrine. Kevin is an Englishman, lives in the Midlands, and has for about a dozen years now been doing the Yes Music podcast. And he's had most every living member of the band on, even some are now no longer with us, and done over 600 episodes, just diving deep, deep down into every little niche aspect of the band. It shows he has a lot of passion and a lot of knowledge, and he loves to share it with folks all around the world. I was recently listening to him interview John Davidson, their lead singer, about Mirror to the Sky, their new album, uh, and thought it was great. And when I found out he was releasing this book, The Tormato Story, about the 1978 album, which is not everyone's favorite. I mean, I went platinum in the U.S., but didn't have any huge hits. Don't Kill the Whale was a bit of a hit, but usually isn't in a Yes fan's top five albums of all time. And to the casual rock and roll fan, they might not even know that Tormato exists. So when I found there was a book on Tormato, I'm like, huh, well, that's interesting. Kevin was good enough to send us some advanced copies. And I got to tell you, I love reading this book. It has so much intimate detail about the band being in AdVision and and RAC Studios in London, where they took the pictures in Regent's Park for the back cover, the instruments everybody used, how they made some of the instruments. The Byrotron, which was something that Rick Wakeman had invested heavily in that was supposed to replace the Mellotron. Unbelievable detail he goes into. The amount of research is 
amazing. And the photos that they have, because he got a friend who was there in 1978, who got Mickey Mouse to let him in to Rack Studios and walk around a little bit, also equally amazing, because they cleaned him up, and you can really see some detail that no one's ever seen before. So even if it's not your favorite album, even if Yes isn't your favorite band, I think you'll like this book, and I think you'll like the conversation we have with Kevin talking about the research he did and some of the fine points that he came up with for the Tormato story. So we're going to jump into that here very shortly. Just a little bit of business first. First, we have to mention that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is a network of about 100 different music shows. Not all rock and roll. There really is something in there for everyone. And you can follow them at Pantheon Pods or PantheonPodcast.com. We actually recently made their top 20 most listened to shows. And so again, we have to thank you for that. And to help us find other rock and roll fans like you, other potential listeners, please consider going out and giving us a positive review wherever you get your podcast. doesn't really matter where, but wherever you like to listen, wherever you download, subscribe, just take a couple minutes, give us a positive review. It's a huge help to us, and it helps us find more rock fans like you. And of course, we have to mention our fantastic sponsors, RareVinyl.com. Guys, based in the UK, Rare Vinyl has over a quarter of a million items in stock, including a lot of yes items. They have stuff from all over the world, and they ship it all over the world. And you can trust these guys. First of all, look, I've been to their operation. I've met their team. They take great care in procuring and shipping all of your stuff all around the world. They've been doing it for 40 years. They've got a five-star rating from Trust Radius. And right now, if you use the code UGLY, you can save 10% off your orders. Now, I know Father's Day is coming up. Maybe you go in there and find that rare thing, whether it's a first edition or it's a tour program or it's a poster from a record store from back in the day. Whatever it is you're looking for, they probably have it. They've got something you're going to want. So go to rarevinyl.com, use the code UGLY, and save yourself 10%. Tell your loved ones for Father's Day, don't get me a damn tie. Get me something I want from rarevinyl.com and use code UGLY. You'll save yourself 10%. Now back to the Tormato story, in-depth read. I really wish I had gotten it before I moved out of London because I would have spent a little bit more time at each one of these spots to better understand how they made this music and who was doing it and when. This may not be my favorite, and it's wedged between a couple that I actually like in going for the one in drama, but that's okay. This is how you learn and get a better understanding for music is by talking and sharing with people who have that passion and that deep knowledge like Kevin does for Yes and Tormato. So without further ado, let's jump in. We're talking to Kevin Mulryan, co-host of the Yes Music Podcast and author of the new book, The Tormato Story, right here on The Wolf. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, 
or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Welcome, welcome to the Ugly American Werewolf in London, although we are stateside now. Yes. And where are you in the Midlands? Yes, I'm in the, right in the middle of the country in Stratford-on-Avon. Oh, very nice. Shakespeare country. Indeed, yes. All right. Well, I'll tell you, Kevin, I, uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on your show. I mean, we're pretty proud that we've been going two and a half years here, but the Yes Music podcast <laughs> is, what, 12 years in the making? It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been quite a thing. It's, it's one of those things that the reason it's gone on so long in a way is because I haven't stopped doing it. You know, you just uh, you get into a, a, a process and into a into a schedule of weekly episodes and you just keep going and keep going. And since since Mark Anthony came, my co-host has, has come on as well. That's that makes it a lot easier when you've got someone, as you I'm sure you know, when you've got someone else to uh, to bounce off. That's, that's really, right. really helpful. So we've been doing that for several years. But but yeah, 20 August 2011, we started. Wow, wow. And then you'll, you'll have more than 600 episodes, a weekly show with more than 600 episodes. And of course, you've had so many characters from the Yes world on over the years, of course, including members of the band, which has got to be a, a dream come true. I mean, still to this day, even though you've been doing this long and you've got this great collection and you've met them over the years, it's still got to be great to be able to have a little one-on-one -on -one interaction with them. Steve Howe or John Davidson or whomever over the years. Yeah, it's been great. We've we've managed to to get uh, get hold of most most of the members of the band, and we're very very happy to to have been able to speak to Alan White, for example, mm -hmm. um, about a year before he died. Uh, so that was fantastic, and and Tony Kay and John Anderson and and various others, uh, including the, uh, the the current members. And it's, mm -hmm. yes, it's a privilege, and they've always been absolutely delightful to us. But we've also enjoyed. As you say, talking to all those people, uh, you know, for, uh, for example, for the the research for the book, all those mm -hmm. people who who don't generally get remembered. Uh, so it's been brilliant to talk to all sorts of people and people like us, people like fan uh, who are huge fans of the band, but have in-depth knowledge as well. Absolutely. No. And, and this book about Tormato, which I, we're going to have to get into, we're going to have to dive into. I appreciate you sending us some copies for us to peruse before we uh, before we get on with you here. But I really wish, because I lived in London for three and a half years, and I wish I'd received this book maybe more than a year ago before I moved away, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, obviously, I've been out in front of R.I.K. I lived in St. John's Wood. I lived less than a mile from R.I.K. Uh, yeah, yeah. That picture I took of Mickey Most 
his blue plaque there. Yeah. I would buy that about once a week. You know, I would drop my daughter off at school and then I'd go to Regent's Park with the dog or to get some exercise or whatever. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's where Mickey Mouse did some of his damage in there without knowing the full, you know, story. <laughs> Or what is it, the, the Macclesfield Bridge? I don't yeah. know. It wasn't the main bridge I walked over, but I certainly walked over it a few times. Yeah. But then to hear the story, to read in your book the story about it, and then to see the picture of them from the back cover, which for what, some reason I always assumed was on Primrose Hill kind of across the street, but I was incorrect about that. And then to see the spot, I'm like, well, I would have gone to that spot, you know, the same picture with you and your buddy that you took there. I'm like, hey, man, I could have done that. So... Just, just knowing some of these spots, uh, or you know, on Talbot Road or whatever, where the the Yes headquarters were, you know, or, or you know, where some of the other studios, like I would have gone to Ad Vision. I just wish I'd had it back in the day because the detail you have on here is amazing, sir. Yeah, it was great. And and going round with with my son, who's a professional photographer, and we went round on on the thing that I called my own Tormato, where I went mm-hmm. round all the sites in in London, was fantastic. And what what really struck us was how how close they all are to each other. Yeah. I mean, there's it, they're all within about a mile and a half, two miles of each other, all these different places in the story, um, even places where the, the guy who created the harpsichord for Madrigal lived mm-hmm. in Pont Street, and uh, that wasn't far away either. So everything was very, very closely concentrated around a sort of central point of Regent's Park, um, as you said, where they, they took, the, uh, took the, the photographs, which you see on the back there. Yeah, um, yeah, and it was fantastic to see the places and to to relive some of those things. And I I posed for some photographs and pretended to be the band and yes. and those sorts of things. It was good fun. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And it's it, the detail you go into in here is really extraordinary, Kevin. I, I really have to congratulate you here because you know I had I have aspirations to write a book. It's like well, one day I'd like to share some of my passion and knowledge of of rock and roll, but you have to be, you can't just be, here's what I like in rock and roll. You know, you have to be a little specific. You have to dial down like, okay, so I need to do an era of a band rather than just a band. Like, And an album would be great, but which album do I love so much that I could give them the detail that you have here? I mean, talk about digging up all these amazing photos and details about their instruments. I mean, going into the detail on Steve's broadcaster that he used and that he kind of regrets changing because it was one of the original broadcasters which i guess would become the telecaster yeah and like mm. so I, I probably shouldn't have messed that up but i still got the sound that i wanted so i don't have any regrets there and learning about the biratron which i want you to kind of tell our listeners about you know rick's venture there and and its purpose and, and kind of its its history it's kind of amazing i'm like i don't have the knowledge or the patience to go into the mm-hmm. detail on one album like you have here, it's really pretty extraordinary. I mean, amazing for Yes fans, but I think people who like the technology of rock and roll will really love your book. Well, thank you very much. Um, it, yeah, it's it's one of those things, and I was, I was thinking about it the other day when someone asked me a similar uh, question about it, and it, it's two things. First of all, I love digging into things, and mm-hmm. I, I wanted to know what the instruments were, which managed to make these really odd sounds some of them on the on the record and you know i first heard the record when i was 13 and uh, it blew my mind completely i've never heard anything like it at all and (laughs) if you think about the sound for example that chris squire got Mm -hmm. um, on this album he never before or since really did he have this uh, exactly the same kind of sound so what was it about his sound and how did he get it and why did he try and do it 
and the the North drums that that Alan White used. Yes. Uh, why did he use those? Just because they looked amazing, or was there something else behind it? Sure. And what was this drum synthesizer that I I saw mentioned? But I, I, there is nowhere that you can see on the album or in the literature uh, that will tell you who created the drum synthesizer and what it was. So I had to dig very deeply to find that. But the thing that you mentioned there, the, the Byrotron, is an amazing story. And Chris Dale is the expert who is, has spent many years now working on wrecked Byrotrons mm -hmm. and trying to resurrect the whole thing from start. So the, the basic idea behind the Byrotron was to create a more usable, more reliable, more flexible version of the Mellotron. So right. the Mellotron is the archetypal progressive rock instrument, and it creates so much of the atmosphere and, and keyboard color of so many of our favorite records. But what Dave Byro wanted to do, that was the guy who invented it, was to create something that would, that would address some of the limitations of the Mellotron. So as you may know, the, the Mellotron works on, on loops of tape, but when you hold down the Mellotron keys, it can only play for eight seconds. Eight seconds, that's yeah. That's the length of the tape. And once it gets to the end of that tape, it has to rewind itself and you have to go back to the beginning. So that seriously um, reduces the creativity that you can have when you're using a, a Mellotron and it, it makes you play in a particular way. Sure. So what he decided to do was to use, to still use the tape loop idea. And this was before digital days, of course, so of that course. it was the only sort of way you could do this. But instead of using a loop of tape, which then had to be rewound, he, he used eight track tapes. So exactly the same tapes as you have uh, in an eight track tape recorder player, okay. they used those. And the idea was to have uh, music shops stocking these tapes. So you could go in and, and buy a new set of sounds for your Byrotron, take it home and stick it in and away you go with a completely new orchestra set of tapes or or whatever it was that you wanted. And this was a this was a great idea and he patented the idea and he showed it to to Rick Wakeman. And Rick Wakeman was very, very interested in this idea and he thought it was uh, you know, it will be a fantastic successor to the to the Mellotron because the tape loop, for example, is continuous in an eight track player. Right. So if you hold a chord down or hold a note down on a Byrotron, it will play for ever until you <laughs> yes. hands off the off the instrument again and then it rewinds uh, right uh, uh no it doesn't rewind it just keeps going oh okay it's a continuous loop tape oh wow um so it'll just keep going forever and that was brilliant and the fact that you could swap in and swap out those tapes and get an immediately completely different set of sounds that you could play from the biotron seemed like a fantastic idea now the problem with it was that they were aiming for a, a desktop machine rather than the Mellotron. And of course, one of the problems with the Mellotron is that every time you try and move it, it's so huge right. and so heavy and so cumbersome. Uh, it just goes out of tune and, and everything goes wrong when you try and move the things. Very, very uh, delicate instruments. So therefore, there were many, many stories of, of mm -hmm. Mellotrons going wrong in concert. So, which meant that, because they wanted to make it smaller, neater, easier to, to transport, um, that meant that everything had to be miniaturized. And these were components which had never been miniaturized before. There were only a few companies in the world that could do this work. Everything had to be precision engineered and components for this, for this Byrotron prototype, which had never been created before in the 
to the specifications that they needed to be. So it was an extremely long and extremely difficult and excessively expensive process. Right. And good old Rick Wakeman, as he's done so many times in his career, sank loads and loads of mo his own money into this because he thought it was going to be such a, a wonderful instrument. And he, in fact, ended up buying the patent. So if you look in the patent books, Rick Wakeman is, is down as holding the patent for the Virotron in 1978 when Tormata was was constructed and however it, it it failed and it failed and i asked rick about this recently it failed simply because just around the corner 1980 1979 80 81 um, digital musical equipment started appearing right and so everything based on tape was just immediately obsolete that's right so the biotron company only ever produced a few biotrons and they were only ever produced as prototypes no actual production models were ever produced any instruments at all so there are only a few biotrons left in the world and what chris dale has done is, is just amazing he's he's collected together all the bits and pieces of broken smashed up biotrons and put them together into one working unit and the other thing he's done which is even more complicated is is to recreate the the original sounds so as you can imagine with 40 year old uh, eight track tapes right <laughs> they had disintegrated, almost disintegrated completely. So they had to rebuild those. And he's had to digitize the original sounds, patch them up where the gaps are, and create brand new eight-track cartridges uh, with the original sounds on it, on it. So he's taken a huge amount of time, energy, and uh, yeah, he's done an amazing job on that. And so Rick Wakeman doesn't have a Biotron anymore. Chris Dale has got uh, one that, as I say, he's 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 recreated almost from scratch from the... It's kind of Frankenstein it together, yes? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, and that's just one of the instruments on, on the album, which I've become <laughs> somewhat obsessed with trying to find out about how all the instruments were, were put together and how they worked. Well, one thing that I that really struck me about this book is you mentioned before, you said, well, you know, you understand how the Mellotron works. Mm. No, I had no idea. <laughs> this book goes into such great detail on stuff like right. that. Well, you well you mentioned you know it had a finite amount of time, and you said if you go back and listen to Strawberry Fields, you yeah. can hear where it runs out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go ahead and do that now because I want to hear that. <laughs> uh, what I really like about this book is that even if you even if you were not familiar with Tormato, even if you weren't really a huge fan of Yes, you could read this book and get a lot of information, a real deep dive into the instruments that they play, the way that they put this record together, and just kind of the recording, mm. what was happening at the time, both with the band and kind of, you know, records in general. You know, after mm. the punk thing came out, Yes was kind of in a strange area as far as what they wanted to do. And th this chronicles how it all came together with what we know as as the album now. Yes, and it, it was fascinating. And, and the person who, who really spurred me on to create the book was Peter Willerscroft. And I managed to find him. So I, his name was is on the back of Tormato. And he was the the tape op, so it was his job to look after all the all the takes. So when you when you think that there were thirty five different takes of on the silent wings of freedom, and yes. it was his job to <laughs> to keep all those together. So when when Chris Squire said, "Oh, let's 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 take the the, the first two minutes of take six and splice it together with uh, tape thirty five, it was Peter's job to to make sure that happened. And he, amazing character and, and a lovely guy. And he he came on and and the onto the podcast. And the thing which, as I say, kicked me off was the fact that he wrote diaries of his time at Advision when he was tape op and 
and everything that he did. And so he has a, a very good set of recollections about exactly what Yes did, how they behaved, how they tried to set up the the studio in the first place, although it didn't work, um, <laughs> and everything that went into creating those backing tracks at AdVision. Um, so yeah, Peter was an amazing guy to talk to. Yeah, no, and talking about how a lot of people feel that the mix is murky, it's flat. Even Rick is like, you know, this didn't turn out the way it should have. And, yeah. and talking about what they did at AdVision versus RAK, just even though the technical details about, we all talk about the masters. Okay, well, we're going to remaster something, or we're going to put in a new mix. We've got to get the masters to do that. Even him talking about the difference between, and some of the other folks, the difference between the master tape. The, the multi-tracks. The multi-track, yes, thank you. The difference between master tape and multi-track tape. To the average person, they're like, huh? Uh, but just <laughs> that difference is huge, you know? And and where are those then? Are they in the vaults? Did they get destroyed in the universal fire? Are they sitting in Chris Squire's estate's basement somewhere, you know? Who knows, you know, but you, Mr. Detective, have tracked all this down and, and we know mm. this stuff now. It's kind of amazing. Yes. And that was the great conversation we had with Brian Cahew. And he was responsible for getting the, the, the additional, the expanded version, extra songs, uh, which appear on both Tormato and he also did the, the drama expanded and remastered version. He didn't do the remastering. He just did the, the hunting around in the in the vaults for anything which was usable which they could release on those expanded versions and brian is a fascinating character anyway because he also put together the progeny box set and so it was his job to he he put together and revamped and remastered all the the progeny recordings which was an amazing undertaking and um, that's slightly off the topic of what we're talking about today but if you have a chance to go and listen to the the episode of the yes music podcast with brian cake it's it's fascinating to see what he did to, to to scrub up those recordings but yes he was the one who who pointed out to me the the differences between master tapes and uh, multi-track okay. tapes mm -hmm. so when stephen wilson did the the remasters and remixes critically of the five yes albums that he did right um he was able to go back to the original not master tapes but the original uh, multi-track tapes which meant that he could boost chris squire's bass part or choose a completely separate bass bass uh, take right. and splice that in and make it sound the way he wanted to make it so that's why there were such significant differences between his remaster his sorry his remixes and the uh, original so, in fact, Brian told us that, as you might imagine in the recording business, master tapes is a bit of a strange term and means different things to different people. Yeah, I didn't realize that. So master tapes to most people means the, the first stereo definitive mix, and that's a master tape, and they put that aside and they keep it, and they might copy it straight away um, and, and keep it so that the original intentions are, are always kept and then put it in a vault and and you can go back to it afterwards as opposed to the uh, multi-track tapes which as the as the name sounds are all the individual parts and so when you see something like a documentary like the the classic albums documentaries where they sit at the mixing console and they're able to uh, mess around with the faders and um, listen just to the isolated drums or the isolated whatever's on those tracks um, you could do that so that's what you need in order to fundamentally remix albums or at least it was until very recently and the technology which was developed for the the recent beatles uh documentary documentary film that's right the that technology 
will in the future allow you to do a lot more in terms of remixing if you don't have the individual tracks. Um, however, that's what we, we are talking about when we say were the master tapes or the multi-track tapes for Tormato lost or destroyed? And Brian Cahew, as I say, had that job of finding uh, additional versions of, of songs and different songs that were released uh, that weren't released on the original album. And so he went into the, the, the Warner Brothers tape vault and he, he got those. And it was his job, as I say, to, to look for additional things. But at the same time, he did see the original uh, multi-track tapes for the albums as well. So he was able to confirm to us that the Tomato uh, multi-track tapes are not lost. They are in there and they could be used to, to remix the, the album if there was ever a, <laughs> a, a, a really compelling reason to do that. And, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? Is there a, is there a compelling reason to do that? Well, only if you could persuade as many Yes fans as possible to, to buy the Right. probably rather expensive new version of Tomato if they did do it. So there's got to be a commercial incentive to it in the end. And I don't think there is, has been that combined with the fact that, uh, yes, themselves, uh, the, the members of the band on the record are not particularly keen on the record anyway. Uh, right. It's probably not going to be at the top of their list to remix. You know, but it's interesting. It, you said in the beginning of this book that, I believe you came to this record uh, and 90125 at the same time. And Oliver Wakeman kind of said the same thing in, in the foreword that he wrote, that that this was kind of the first record that he got into. So we talk about this, I don't know, phenomenon, I guess, the stuff that imprints on you as uh, when you first start to listen, like you'll always have a special place in your heart for that. Mm. And I kind of feel like from uh, this book, there are people who really do hold this record in high regard just because it is kind of the the one-off. I think you said in the promo stuff for 90125 and Big Generator, they didn't even mention this record. Yeah, which is bizarre. Yeah, like it never happened. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the there were three consecutive um, tour books or tour programs, um, 90125, Big Generator, and then I always forget what the third one is. Uh, Talk. Not the talker union yeah union isn't it i think uh, and those three books don't mention tormato as ever having existed it, it's left out from the discography <laughs> and that's partly because at the time tormato was out of print so going into oh, a record okay. store you couldn't have got a copy but it's also partly because <laughs> well you can guess can't you on other <laughs> yes. reasons because the band weren't particularly proud of it fortunately uh, it is back in print, and, and I go through in the book all the different versions, all the different formats which have come out over the years, and I had an, a very amusing couple of days where I listened to, to nine different versions, nine different formats of the album, and wow. gave my thoughts about which is the best. I'm, I'm, I won't tell you um, just now, you'll have to read the book to see That's which right. I think is the best. <laughs> but yeah, it was fascinating to go through all those different formats, and you know, it's, it's great that, that it has has come back from that uh, that period of not being released again and uh, when cds came about i mean it it, after, it eventually got a cd release it wasn't one of the first um, tranche of, of yes albums to to get that cd release and i remember buying a copy of of 90125 on cd it was one of the first cds i had actually and that, so that was an 83 84 um, but tomato didn't have a release until about 89 i think gotcha 
on CD. Uh, and of course, now they have all these, uh, as you call them, bonus tracks. And the fact of the matter is, on the course of doing this record and at both studios, they basically made a record and a half or maybe even two records worth of material. And I'm a sucker mm. for a good B-side or an unreleased track that you've never heard on the radio or something like that. So yeah, they've, they've basically got a whole second record here. Of all of those, which one is your favorite? Of the additional. Of the additional, right, right. Not not the main tour model, but from Abilene down to, you know, the, the extras. I mean, in terms of the music on it, I I quite like the, the one with the, the Dennis Healy, uh, Rick Wakeman skit on it. Um, <laughs> which one is that? Is that the second song? I'm trying to remember. Uh, is that Money? Money, yeah. of course. That's exactly what it is. From the point of view of the... Uh, of the the inst what the instruments are doing on that song I, that's my favorite one um <laughs> as i say in the book the the comedy routine that that rick does <laughs> over the top of that is 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 best forgotten frankly um and it's a shame it wasn't mixed out completely uh in the process because it's um it, it's uh yeah it's it's one of rick's you know and and if you if you sort of multiply what rick usually does in his comedy by the uh by the political and <laughs> non-PC type 1978, then, yeah, it's, it's pretty offensive in some ways. But So, yeah, the, what the musicians are doing on that, uh, what the instruments are doing, I really like, but, uh, yeah, not, not too keen on the comedy. Pink Floyd has a money song. Abba's got a money song. Do we really need one? I don't know. But that's that's grumpy old Rick for you, I guess. I mean, mm. someone who who seems to be upset all the time about something, and yet he's hilarious. He's a very very <laughs> funny man. I mean, what would you how what would you tell us from your interactions with Rick that that maybe the average person might not get from all his funny interviews or TV hostings over the years? What, what did you take away from your conversations with Rick? Yeah, I mean, he's. He's an extremely generous, as as I have found all the the yes members that I've spoken to over the years. Rick is a, a very very generous character, and he is always uh, he, he always stresses how much he values his time in yes. It's an, he's not one of those people that leaves the band and then slags them off continually. Mm -hmm. He he is very keen on the on the on every iteration of the band because he sees it as a legit, legitimate part of the band's history. So he would never bash a particular lineup. Um, that's not his style at all, and he's most proud. And you can see this by by the fact that he keeps coming back to Yes Music. So his most recent concert series that he's announced for next February, um, he's doing his delve back into Yes Music, and he wouldn't be doing that if he wasn't proud of what he achieved. And he was also someone who, if you think about when he came back into the band uh, 2002, uh, he was happy to play things like Magnification. He, he mm -hmm. doesn't doesn't bear grudges musically um, at all and that was you know that's one of the things that I that I got from him but also his love of all different kinds uh, of, of music as well and of course he's a classically trained um, keyboardist classically trained piano player and 
digging into his his part on on magical for example was was fascinating for the book because because there's a great story about him at the Royal College of Music sneaking in and playing the harpsichord when he wasn't supposed to because you were only supposed to play that harpsichord if you were doing harpsichord as your main study uh-huh. and he wasn't he was doing he was doing piano but he snuck in there anyway and started to play it and and the story goes that an old guy walked up and uh, asked him what he was doing and he was saying oh I'm playing this harpsichord and the guy said to him well why why are you playing that particular harpsichord and Rick said well that's because it's a, a goff harpsichord and they're the best and it turned out that the guy talking to him was goff himself <laughs> wow so his <laughs> instrument and yeah it's it's those sorts of things that alongside the amazing musicianship the virtuosic um, abilities of rick yes he's a real person he's he's a he's a warm friendly individual maybe sometimes uh, People don't like all of his uh, comedy, as we've just been talking about, but that's sure. fine. That's just one of those things, isn't it? Um, he's a really warm and open and uh, generous person. So when when I was trying to get some comments from him for the book, and uh, I happened to know Oliver, which is his son, and that's that's why we um, we got him to do the the forward. And um, and I only know him through through talking to him on the podcast about his music and his part in Yes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he got straight on to his dad and said, you know, please, please answer these questions that, <laughs> that Kevin has, sent yeah. in. And he was he was very, very um, happy to do so, despite the fact that he was he was uh, rehearsing for another yet another concert tour when when I sent those through to him. So, uh, you know, very generous, very likable, very friendly individual. Well, it's interesting that you bring up that he holds no grudges because I, I've seen him uh, in a, I can't remember what the documentary was. Uh, it was when Chris was still with us. But he's talking about how he's glad about 90125, even though he was not a part of that. He's like, this is the album that has sustained the band and allows yeah. us to continue to, to visit this. I don't feel like Steve Howe is the same way. Uh, and I can tell that he does not like to play stuff that he was not on and he it's just it's not a lot it's not in a lot of their sets uh and it's it's he kind of downplays it and i even on the union tour it's like oh well if they're playing a song from 90125 i'm just gonna get off of stage I'm like mm. well come on man everyone except you maybe steve has raved about how maybe the union album was not great because there's really kind of two albums they kind of squished together but the tour they all love and you can mm. see rick in those videos, he's really interacting with yeah. Trevor Rabin. I'm like, well, he and Trevor were never together in Yes Before Union, but and obviously they have been in, in Anderson, uh, Red Whitman, but uh, it's like he didn't know this guy, but it's like he looked like he was having fun with this yeah. guy who's more of a riff master than you know the technical prowess of, of Steve Howe. Would, would you agree with what I'm saying? Yes, I, I think you're right. Um, the thing about Steve is that he, you know, musically, he he is very clear about yes what he likes what he doesn't like what he's prepared to do what he's not prepared to do and as you say he's not keen on playing yes songs that he wasn't on and frankly he's not keen on playing some yes songs that he was on yeah so when i spoke to him about about on the silent wings of freedom which they brought back and i very much enjoyed i, I managed to see them last year at the royal albert hall and it was a fantastic oh, i was there concert. man i was there oh you were there Fantastic. Yeah, I was there. Lisa went and sat right behind me. Ah, right. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. But uh, what a special night that was, yeah? It was It was wonderful. But I asked him specifically why they had left the introduction out. 
So the one of the best things about that song for me, and I suppose most other Yes fans who like it, is the amazing Chris Squire introduction, the, the bass solo essentially at the mm-hmm. start of that song, and he left it out. And I asked him on the podcast exactly why they left it out, and he was very clear that he was very unhappy with his own playing. Uh, he had, mm. he had uh, improvised those parts at the beginning. He wasn't happy with what was happening between him and Rick Wakeman on that album, and, you know, he was... He's very sure that that both of them were trying to outdo each other and play in the same sort of oral space as each other and and all that all that kind of stuff and so he's ended up hating what he did himself at the beginning of that song and so he was very specific he said i'm not going to sit down and learn parts that i don't like even if they're my parts even if i created them i'm still not going to do it and no one's going to persuade me to do it so <laughs> the rest of the time that I've spoken to him, oh, and, that, and that time as well, but all the times that we've spoken to him, again, he has come over as a, as a really generous, kind individual and, and, and has spoken very openly about the things we've asked him about. But there are, he has boundaries, doesn't he? You know, yes. he, he won't go past that. And, you know, in some ways, I think he's right. So the first time I saw Yes was on the Open Your Eyes tour, so I'm, I'm relatively relatively recent that was in 1998 um and yes he handed over to billy sherwood who at the time was playing some guitars and some keyboards right. for the band rather than bass as he does now of course uh, he handed over to him for the for the owner of lonely heart solo and i thought that was a, a very good plan actually because because steve when he does that sort of a solo and he grudgingly has done the that solo and, and that's uh, trevor rabin's song he puts his own stamp on it he tries to play it in his own way but it, frankly i don't think it really comes off brilliantly mm-hmm. and so he he knows what he's capable of he knows what he likes doing so in the end uh, i don't blame him for not wanting to play things that he don't doesn't think shows his abilities off so you know that's that's fine but as i say he's always been absolutely delightful to us when we've interviewed him talking about steve howe one of the things that really struck me in the book was the the talking about all the different guitars that he used but especially the les paul and kind of going down that rabbit hole uh there's a gentleman who bought it <laughs> yes. a, a couple of years ago and actually has a youtube video where he takes it apart yeah and it's like 25 or 30 minutes long i watched <laughs> every second of that yeah. like really Whoa. and then this and then he goes through every single part but but the coolest thing is is when he's showing you i don't know what fret it is the the 12th fret or whatever that's got the eye it looks like it's an eye mm. and you can see that on the heat of the moment video Mm. And you can see it in the uh, Don't Kill the Whale also, that well, the guitar itself. Mm. And to think that was, it wasn't a model. It wasn't the same. It was exactly the same guitar that made those yeah. sounds. We yeah. are huge Asia fans here That's on right. this show. Right. Yes. And, and to think that that was the guitar that made those sounds. It's just, I mean, it, it, again, I'm going back to the fact that this book can lead you down a lot of different rabbit holes. If you want to nerd out on like technology or <laughs> it, it gear, anything like yeah. that, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. 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 Well, we loved speaking to Fernando Podomo, who came to talk, mm-hmm. to, talk to us about the guitars. And uh, he's, he's such an enthusiastic guy. We, we couldn't shut him up. He just kept going <laughs> and going and going about the guitars. And, and we've only talked to him about Steve Howe's guitar, uh, guitars, of course, uh, and on, on Tomato specifically, but we, we need to have him back on the show to talk about about Trevor Rabin's guitars, which he knows about. And he's also a, a huge 
fan of, of Peter Banks and knows everything there is to know about his guitar. So that, you know, that's going to be another amazing, amazing experience. But the, in terms of the basses as well, just talking about, about um, guitars generally uh, for the book, um, we spoke to Miguel Falcao, who is an amazing, amazing bassist himself and has done um, dozens and dozens of, of bass covers of Chris Squire. And um, I took up the, the bass guitar myself because, because I saw what Miguel was showing me about Chris Squire. Uh, so I got hold of a bass and started copying Miguel's uh, covers of, of, of Chris Squire. But yeah, Miguel went into, a, again, a huge amount of detail about the Rickenbacker bass and uh, the Thunderbird bass that, that also appears on Tormato. And but not only that, the the board, the the effects board, and mm. the uh, the bass pedals that that Chris Squire used. And what kicked me off with that was Dave Watkinson um, took a photograph of the setup of the Tormato bass setup when he was when he visited Rack Studios in 1978 and was left by Mickey Most to, to roam around with his brother in the studio for about two and a half hours before Yes turned Unbelievable. up. Unbelievable. That's and a great story. It's, 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 it's an amazing, amazing story. And Dave's a, a wonderful, a wonderful guy. But what we did was we, we managed to persuade Dave for the first time since 1978 to, to digitize those photographs. Mm. And we saw a huge amount more detail in those photographs than had ever been seen before. So 1978 analog snapshots, um, which have been scrubbed up specifically for this book. And so we can see exactly what the pedals were, exactly how it all fitted together that, uh, that, that Chris was using there and on, on stage on the Tomato and the, and the um, Tentry Summers tours. So we know exactly what he was doing and exactly how he got those sounds, which is what, which is what um, uh, Miguel Falcao helped us with so yeah that so many people have helped us to understand more about the album hi this is jeff downs you're listening to the ugly american werewolf hey pantheon listeners christian swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear as i'm sure you can guess i listen to a lot of podcasts i also listen to a lot of music so having high quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day oh and i have numerous pairs in fact i have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust so i've tried them all recently i was sent a pair of earbuds by raycon and the first thing i noticed was the cost Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands okay that's cool and the reviews seem pretty stellar okay checks that box So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise cancelling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order 
plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. It's an amazing in-depth book. I mean, it's a real detective work on your part to, to piece all of this together. And that's why I think even if you're not a huge fan of Tormato, you like, yes, but you're not, you're going to love this book. And, and even if you're not like Jackson said, you may not even have to be a huge yes fan, but if you like to, to get in depth about how these things are made and, and where they're made and the sounds they came out, you're going to love it. I mean, I, I totally recommend it. I, and I do want to get into the tunes a little bit here with you uh, because I mean, I, Look, I, I bought the, the the yes, like you know, all the discs remastered in a little clamshell kind of thing with the new Roger Dean artwork on it. So you know, I've listened to Tormato and the bonus tracks uh, a couple times over the years, not <laughs> as many times as you have. Yeah, I know. But and, and I think most people know "Don't Kill the Whale" because either they've heard it on the radio. I mean, it got into the top forty in the UK back in the day. Um, it was a big hit. Well, it was it was a bit of a hit. For them over the years but i mean some of the the work on here even though the mix kind of turned some people off there's still some amazing stuff on here like magical you know mm. with rick playing the harpsichord you know it's a little baroque medieval an incredibly short song for a yes song but mm. beautiful uh and i still think it fits you can say well that's a weird one i'm like well not for yes ufo is kind of a weird right mm. i mean or or circus of heaven mm. That's a weird one, right? You know, I mean, uh, I I like, uh, and I think it ends very strongly. A lot of people like, okay, the last few songs, we'll just put the worst couple songs at the end. But I think Onward, which is a Squire composition, which is kind of amazing, is the second to last song. And then we mentioned on the Silent Wings of Freedom, which they brought back for the last tour, is an, an amazing way to finish this album. Very strong, the last two songs, where you know, whereas there's a couple of odd ones before that. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a, a lot of a lot of gems in there, and I think people do do tend to focus on arriving UFO and Circus of Heaven. And yeah, okay, they they are odd. They certainly yeah. are odd. And Fernando's Fernando Podomo's comment about the album to sort of sum it up was he he said that the the over overriding feeling you get from it is quirky, and I think that's a good word. Uh, but the problem is that they weren't going for quirky. Yeah, <laughs> they, they were, <laughs> and so so things like Circus of Heaven definitely ended up not being quite as they had hoped it would be. I think, and obviously driven by John Anderson and his lyrics in that and arriving UFO are are some of the oddest lyrics that he ever came came up with. And um, and I enjoyed sort of digging into those those lyrics and the way they work and the way they work with the with the sound um, that was created. I actually quite like Arriving UFO. It's, it's very definitely, you know, 1978 and those, those synthesized very early, very, very early synthesized drums mm -hmm. and effects that are on there. But yeah, we have to remember that that, that was science fiction in 1977, 78 was huge. Right. Because you, you had Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Star Wars the year mm -hmm. before Tormato came out, so it was very much top of everyone's minds. So I think it was a good, well, or it should have been a good sort of marketing ploy to include to include those in there. And and of course, on the Tormato tour, they they played uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind theme music 
to introduce the the concerts mm-hmm. um whereas when more more used to uh young Firebird. boys guys the orchestra and yeah. firebird um but but yes they changed it up for that and i think that was all around this idea of science fiction and, and fantasy <laughs> to behold Vessels of a different impression than that we could ever hope to have known So look out And it's very trippy and, and proggy in some parts and they're playing with all everyone's playing with their, their new toys on this when you kind of tell Rick's trying yeah. to make some, some cool stuff It's just, I, you know I was surprised to find that, that Steve co-wrote this because he's not super prominent at least I, I don't always hear him no. that well in this mix, you know? No, 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 you're right. And, and well, I mean, when we've spoken to various people on the podcast about, about writing credits, they always point out that it's really <laughs> for convenience. It's really to make sure that they've split up the, the royalties um, sensibly. So mm-hmm. did, did the people named actually write the bulk of those songs? We will never know. But (laughs) so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's one point, but yes, you're right. That, that, that is true that he's not, he's not particularly prominent on that song. Just about magical though. uh, I think that's a a fascinating song and, and I think Rick is still keen on what he did there. Mm. And um, we spoke to a guy called James Gardner about, about magical and about the use of the harpsichord, which is then sent me, on another down another huge rabbit hole about <laughs> harpsichords and how they work and the development of them and and the, the Thomas Goff harpsichords and all that but and that's that's I found that all absolutely fascinating and and wonderful but that I think something that which is easy to overlook on Tomato is the orchestration so the orchestration was was done by Andrew Price Jackman who also did the orchestration on Fish Out of Water Chris's classic solo oh, album yeah. and i was fascinated because i've always loved that orchestration so there's some strings on on madrigal and and also on on onward of course onward with the french horn solo there as well and i've always loved that stuff but when i mentioned it to to rick wakeman he's actually which i didn't realize he he had intended to do those orchestrations himself yeah. and he was rather upset that he didn't get the chance to so again, what what would that have done to the to the album? <laughs> right. How different could that have been if he'd got his hands on the orchestrations? And so you know, he, he views it as water under the bridge, as it's forty five years ago. Uh, but but no, he he really wanted to do that himself. But I've always loved that, and I think that's onward would be a great, beautiful love song without that. But I think adding that orchestration and particularly the French horn solo, I think uh, elevates that song. Mm-hmm. much much further than it would have been and I, I, I just love it and of course you can't think about onward now without without imagining in your mind's eye the the tributes to to chris squire his his rickenbacker bass in the middle of the stage with a single spotlight on it uh, it was yeah. it was very deeply affecting that and a great of course great loss of both him and and alan white but but yeah and that there are some real powerhouses aren't there on on the album mm. which again think i think people forget a so release release 
Future Times Rejoice Itself and the, the last song the, uh, on the Silent Wings of Freedom are all really strenuous. And that's why a lot of those songs didn't, didn't survive very long to play live because they were just, they were too frenetic. There was too much in them. There's too much energy in, involved in, in recreating those live, and, uh, which is a shame because I, I, think, I think those are real rocking numbers and, and would, would stand up very well in a, in a Yes concert today even. <laughs> Said my friend of a distant life Covered in greens of a golden age Set in stone, follow me He sounded a dream supreme Follow me, drifting within the glow And the afterglow of the eve And if the firelights I could match the inner flame Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, release, release. I mean, wasn't it a single in Canada, maybe? Yeah, so uh, this is... I've got into trouble on on uh, on social media by mentioning this. People have got very upset with me for some reason. Uh-huh. I don't know why? Anyway, so the 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 single um, "Don't Kill the Whale" was released in the UK and most other places with um, Abilene on the B side, right. and that's how it was. However, in the US, in the US, the the B side was release release. Uh-huh. So, and if you look at something like the the promo copy of of the single in America, it doesn't have a side A and a side B referenced at all. Oh. So maybe at some point the idea was to have it released as a double A side. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure; it's not clear. But certainly, any anyone that you speak to um, from the US and say, you know, what what was the single from Tormato, they'll always say it's "Don't Kill the Whale," which is fine. But officially in Canada, they were swapped around, and um, release release was the A side in Canada and uh, uh, Don't Kill the Whale was the B-side and that was the same in uh, the Philippines, allegedly. I've never been able to confirm that in the same way as I've never been able to confirm that there is a, a 12-inch version of the of the single. It's written down somewhere, but that doesn't make it true. Right. Um, and I've certainly never found a copy of it. So yes, yes, release, release. Uh, I think could have been another great single. I I would have preferred there to be at least two singles from the album myself. Well, I guess yeah, they tried to play it live, and they're like, mm. yeah, we gotta swap this out for something else, which is yeah. too bad because you know, I mean, obviously it was the part where they pipe in the the audience noise, the, the cheering yes. fans or whatever, so Alan can do his drum thing. But that's killer. I mean, what Alan did was great, and then this sick bass from Chris. At the end, I'm like, yeah, this is very yes. This is mm. this this absolutely fits in their whole catalog. They should have tried to play this live, but I guess it was it was just a, a bit of an undertaking. They said we've got other stuff we can do, which obviously yeah. did. Yeah. Speaking of playing live, uh, what I didn't realize is that this was one of the first times they'd ever anyone had ever incorporated a round stage into a rock star yeah. rock show. We mm. uh, we went and saw Def Leppard on the I think it was the '92 
Adrenalized tour where they used that, and we thought, oh, this is the first. You know, Def Leppard was the first. No, <laughs> yes, had beat them to the punch. Um, it, just interesting thinking about how it, how it played out. Not only getting getting the the fans a better view of the band, but also selling more front row tickets mm. was it was an interesting idea too. Yeah, so this was Michael Tate who came up with the idea for the the rotating stage. Who was the the lighting and and scenery and had all, all those sorts of things and. And is a legendary figure now, really, for for those aspects of of concerts. But he it, it was his idea for the rotating the rotating stage, and part of it he's quite quite open about it nowadays was that you could have a an immensely long front row. Mm-hmm. And one of the photographs that I've got in the in the book shows that you know, so yeah. many more people are close to the stage, That's right. close to the the action, as it were. And fascinating that they. That they brought it, the concept back for the Union tour, um, because again they wanted to get as many people as possible close to their heroes, and yeah. I think it, I think it went really well. I mean, it, it did break down once or twice, of uh, course. very famously that they, <laughs> they got the <laughs> quite handy to have that very large number of people right close to the stage because they managed to get them to to come and 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 rotate the stage when the machinery broke down. And so the the whole of the front couple of rows was empty uh, because the the fans were pushing the stage. They were actually around. turning the stage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> but yes, it, it's a it's a fascinating thing. And the 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 other one that I know a lot of, uh, not not a lot about, but the, the other one I know of is the the Peter Gabriel rotating stage from many years later. And it's fascinating to to see the differences between those two stages, but. Of course, for the roadies, it was a nightmare because they were underneath the stage. For the whole well, of the, the that whole was the other the thing, too. It, famously, the, the Def Leppard stage had a lot of room underneath the stage for all kinds of shenanigans. Mm. Uh, but it didn't look like the Yes stage. Like I guess they had to no. kneel or something. Yeah. And it, it looked very uncomfortable. Yes, they had to kneel. And eventually there was a, a bit of a... A protest from the the stagehands <laughs> underneath the stage because they were kneeling and crawling around literally crawling around for the whole time and in those days of course yes uh, shows were rather longer than they are um, recently uh, <laughs> but they were crawling around and eventually they said look we're not going to do this anymore unless you put some carpet in for us to yeah. <laughs> protect our knees a bit better so they they did actually put some carpet in un- under there for them but again, something else. Jeremy North is a, a friend of mine who went to the. I suppose it was the yeah, it was the first time that that stage was ever used was in Wembley, the Wembley concerts in 1978, and he took some amazing photographs of that concert. And again, we digitized those, and we were able to zoom in much further than than had previously done uh, been done. And you can see a, a, a hatch. There there were some grills mm-hmm. in the stage where which could could be popped open and and they could hand guitars out and so on but there's a a bit like uh that you see in the footlights in a in a theater there's a there's a little hatch and in one of his photographs you can see the head of one of the roadies yeah. <laughs> which is really fascinating to see to see him there and so that was a kind of spy hole that they had they could stick their head up through this gap and see what was happening on stage and make sure everything was going well so yeah, it was a, a fascinating thing, and that they kept using, of course, on the um, the drama tour. They used the same 
same stage, but they, they did say, and I'll, I'll, I won't tell you that story because I think that's a great story um, about how they, they managed to appear, the band appeared as if by magic in the, on the top of that rotating stage for the, for the drama tour because uh, they had always intended to do that. So for the tour, Marceau and the uh, 10 True Summers tour with the, with the, with the um, rotating stage, the band wanted to appear as if by magic on the stage and were not having to walk through the audience like they did in the end. And this was all part of their concept of the 11th Illusion, which was the, which was the uh, uh, working title of Tormato mm. before they settled on yes tour and then tomato that's another story yes. um but uh, but yeah so they had this idea of of creating visual illusions um but they didn't manage to do it for that tour but they did manage to do it on on the drama tour with a rather different lineup of the band of course yes yes and so just quick side question here for you because uh, when union came out i was kind of fascinated and that's when Jackson and I were like graduating from high school, going into college, starting to become friends. The, the fact that they had this in the round spinning thing was, was fascinating to me. It's like, I wasn't a huge Yes fan at that time, but I thought that would be a killer show to see. Now, I have seen video. They released a video, but I think it was from Miami or Sunrise, Florida, where they did the end stage. They did not, the video does not have the in the round. Is there an in the round video? from that tour that you have access to or that you've seen. I, I'm pretty sure that there there is some video. I don't know how. I don't think it's officially released. No, I don't, yeah. I don't think there's an official one. But yes, that's something else to dig into, isn't it? Yeah, ah. I'm sure I have seen. I'm sure I have seen a video of that, of that round stage, which was not the same round stage, of course. They created a new one, but uh, but yeah, fascinating stuff. And, and fascinating that now there is one venue, I forget the name of it now in the US, which is permanently set up as a, as a rotating circular stage and yes did play there quite recently interesting well i'd love them to do an official release it's a fascinating time for the band i mean it's it's the one lineup where you kind of have to have something like that because you, you kind of have two of everything and uh mm -hmm. you know it, there's you know two drummers two keyboards it, it makes sense to, to give everybody a, an opportunity to see everybody so yeah i just wish they would i mean and i'm not a huge fan of the album union i don't know that anyone in the band is i don't know how many fans really are but that tour was was something special that i think everyone really enjoyed except for maybe our friend steve now that's, mm, that's the mm, yeah <laughs> well, there you go uh well listen kevin i thank you so much for for spending some time with us here and congratulations on the book i, I think it's very well done it's incredibly well researched and even the photos can give you some great detail that not everyone has seen before why don't you tell everybody where they can get it and how they can order so here it is again yes the tomato story by me and with the forward by the wonderful oliver wakeman so that's the 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 book now if you're in the eu or in the uk the best way to get hold of a copy is via the burning shed uh, website because they have been doing the pre-order for me and have been sending them out now if you're overseas from me um of course the the postage and packing is quite expensive so you might want to buy it from a local store so amazon have got copies although uh, it only went live on amazon on friday and amazon bless them take quite some time to to catch up properly so if you go on your local amazon store you might find it there and easily available you might have to wait a little bit a few days for them to get their act together 
It's it's a print-on-demand book, which means that it'll be printed locally to you if you buy it from an online store, and uh, you know, therefore saving all the carbon and all that. And it certainly won't run out. They won't. They will never run out. They, were, they are printed to order. But the other thing about the book is that because it's printed uh, on demand, there's there are only black and white photographs in it because it was just vastly expensive to do it any other way. So what I have done is created this supplement, which I've called Colour Supplement, which has got a lot of the important colour photographs from the book reproduced. So, for example, there's a whole spread about the Biotron there. Okay. And the photographs from Dave Watkinson of, of the band in, in Rack Studio. So this is, uh, this is a nice accompaniment to the main book, and that's only available from me directly. So if you go to uh, tomatobook.com, you can order yourself a copy of that so the the two the two items really go together so it may well be that i that i make that available online um in a different way in the future but at the moment tormatobook.com is the only way of getting hold of that supplement gotcha and of course the yes music podcast you can get anywhere you get your podcast and i assume you have no plans to quit that anytime soon no i don't see why i don't see why we would it's <laughs> it's going strong and we've got I mean, for example, we've got an interview I did for the book with this guy, Derek Dearden, who created the drum synthesizer. And that's that's waiting to come out. So that's going to be with us in a couple of weeks time. And, you know, there are 55 or whatever it is, years of yes history to talk about. So that's that's how we've managed to keep going for for 12, 13 years. And yeah, yeah, no reason to stop us yet. Thank you so much for joining us. And many successes with the book, man. It's it's fantastic. It's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that time flew by, Jackson. We didn't even get into the hypnosis cover or the... We, we, he barely touched on the fact that it was going to be called Yes Tour, and then they changed it to Tormato because of Rick or whoever it was who threw the tomato at the, uh, at the proof that hypnosis had done, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's... But we have to respect his time, so that may be for another episode. Who knows? But just an interesting deep dive into a into an album that a lot of people don't really pay much attention to, 
outside of hardcore yes fans yeah and you gotta believe that this is i would say that this is the lineup like if, if anyone's gonna say what's your favorite yes lineup or if you could just have one lineup what would it be maybe there would be some people who would say they would prefer bruford to white but alan was in the band for basically 50 years mm. uh so didn't play on all of their albums but but most all of them but you know having rick in the band is amazing obviously chris squire would be the only bass player anyone would choose mm-hmm. steve howe's got to be the number one guitar player and of course john anderson i mean until what was it 2008 or six or something like that there was only one album that didn't feature john anderson on vocals it was the much maligned drama with trevor horn <laughs> from the buggles but i mean that's one that's really grown on me i would love to talk with him about drama sometime because drama obviously came right after this and you know a lot of people like different singer forget it i don't want to know about it and, and i was probably that way at first but there's some amazing yes stuff on and Jeff is obviously fantastic. We love Jeff Downs, but Trevor does his best. On the record, he did fine. I think it was live that it started to struggle. Yeah, and that is an interesting concept too, because you can go through a lot of different bands who maybe had a an album or two with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that comes to mind is Motley Crue. There was a there was an album in ninety two or ninety three with yeah. John Karabi on it that just got destroyed. But then you go back even, and you yeah. listen you're like. Hey, this really isn't that bad of a record if you if you can kind of separate it out. Yeah. And I think that was you're right with drama. If you give it a chance and you don't go into it with you, like you said, oh, if it's not the original guy on there, I don't want to hear it. Uh, it would be interesting to, to to get Kevin's take on that, and also the take you were talking about. You know, the the hypnosis cover going back to Roger Dean for drama. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it that they you know they went away for going for the one and. Tormato, they yeah. said, okay, we don't need Roger anymore. We need to change it up. We'll go to these guys, Hypnosis, who have done all sorts of amazing covers, and yeah. in the prog world, obviously. So like, I understand most people don't have the exact same person on all their covers anyways. You know, it makes sense, but I don't know. It's just Roger is so tied to it, you know, and Steve yeah. obviously has a, a huge relationship with him as he, I, I guess I can't say he opens for the band now, but he introduced the band on the last tour, and, and for the Steve Howe album, he obviously did the cover for that. What's that? Seventy nine or something. Well, and then he did he did the Asia stuff, and then he did. I'm pretty sure he did the Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe cover. Also, absolutely. So, like yeah. any. So to me, always anything. Yes, was Roger Dean. Look, being able to read this book gives me a real appreciation for this album. I mean, and honestly, I like going for the one better, and then I obviously I like drama better, mm-hmm. and then it's a different era of the band. You could say in the eighties. So this one, to me, I always overlook this one, to be perfectly honest with you, despite the fact that they have the, the lineup that I would say that I appreciated the best. But it takes a, a super fan like Kevin, right. who came to this as a young man and it imprinted on him. And he's like, this is incredibly interesting. This is a very cool part of their history. And he wants to know, he's like us, he wants to know all the little details, <laughs> you know? And his right. detail work on here is outstanding. It's it's really fascinating everything that he uncovered. And and it really it it just it one rabbit hole leads to another rabbit hole to it, it just get into the minutia of how you know how they made the record, what was going on at the time, you know, going from one studio to another, the different instruments, the kind of the tension in the band. It really makes for an interesting story of how this thing came to came to be. Yeah, and we didn't even get into like the back cover, you know, which they had their yes jackets on, but Squire didn't bring his. 
because he was and he was late anyway, which seems to be his mo. Um, but uh, you know, just all these little kind of details about it, it. It makes for great reading, and if you're like us who like these strange facts or, or hard to find details, this is a fun read, and it's mm-hmm. and it's one that you can do pretty quickly. I mean, I read it in a couple of days, just kind of ripped through it. Well, and the, the nice part too is that there are a lot of photos in there, which help too. I mean, you look at it, you're staring down 370 pages. You're like, hmm, that's a lot. But the the photos take up a lot of space on the pages in some parts. But it, they also they also really add to, you know, when he's talking about this setup to right. see it. Like, like there was one about Steve Howe's, uh, you know, he used Fender amps. Right. And to see the picture of it actually set up. Okay, now I see what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, he, like he said, the photos were digitized. So now you can zoom in some stuff and you can see some of Chris Squire's, you know, technical equipment there or whatever, or be able to zoom in on Jen Anderson's 10 string guitar, you know, or, or whatever it might be Uh, like, okay, here's the rack of all of Steve's stuff. Here's the North drums. Wow. That's cool stuff, man. And it just seems like it's nowhere else, right? Right. You can't find that anyplace else. And and the thing about, you know, the, the, everybody's got their own setup. This is the way I want my, my world to be. And then the sound engineer has to come in and say, sorry, fellas, this is not going to work. We've got to move this stuff around. You can't put this here because we need to get everybody recorded and not just one person. And then people get, you know, feelings get hurt. And it's just that I don't envy the, the guys who had to put this all together to try and manage the sound, the songwriting and everybody's, egos i don't know if egos is the right word but everybody's uh, personality while yeah. making this record well i mean they basically didn't have a producer right? i mean yeah. eddie offered kind of split at some point and so then okay we're self-producing well, you got five songwriters <laughs> self-producing a collaborative <laughs> album I mean, no wonder there's 35 takes you know of, on the silent wings of freedom i mean no wonder man because everyone <laughs> has veto power over every note Right. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, it, you need a dictator sometimes, you know. You, you do, yeah, you do. You have to have somebody to, yeah, to, to, uh, to drive the, you know, drive the bus and tell, and tell them, no, the, I, I understand what you're saying, but this is what we're doing. We're using this take. This is how it's going to sound. This is over. We're moving on to the next thing. And then you see their success in the 80s with Trevor Horn at the helm producing. Mm-hmm. No, he's not singing anymore, but now he's in the chair telling you what to do. Yeah, I'm sure that would rub some people the wrong way, but look at the results they got, at least the sales that they got, even if you don't love all those albums, and I don't love Big Generator. Uh, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was trying to do something besides what we call classic yes, is what I right. would say. And, and I really, I like that story about, he, it, like Kevin was talking about uh, Rick Wakeman saying, yeah, you know, he was not on 90125 or Big Generator, but he, he, appreciates the fact that that success well of 90125 carried the band for a long time and, and probably still does to some aspect and he can appreciate that and be positive about it even though he wasn't involved with it yeah yeah absolutely and I, i'm regretful that i never got to see rick play with him i have seen oliver play with them mm-hmm. rick was supposed to play with them on this tour when benoit david was their singer at the time in the 2000s and uh rick couldn't do it or he, he had some kind of illness he's like you know what oliver can do it and so i was like bummed oh no rick i'm like oh but oliver's more than he's pretty fantastic. good yeah it's not like he's some b-level replacement you know he's, he's pretty <laughs> awesome but i mean to, to the point that i was talking with kevin about 
they did play owner of a lonely heart on that. And I don't think Steve played it. <laughs> and I don't know if he's trying, I don't know why he would try to play it badly. He's, he's playing it in his own way. But see, some of the, the discussion in the book about why does he use those holly body, hollow body ES-175s? Because he's not a riff master. He has very precise you know, yeah. stuff. So that's why he doesn't have the Marshall amps. It's why he has the Fender amps, mm -hmm. because you have to clearly hear each note. And then even though he had to do a little bit of that in Asia, when Trevor was in the band, then it's a different sound. You know, it's, it's kind of very different, but it's not just playing style. It's due to a lot of equipment that Kevin goes very in-depth on. Yeah. Yeah. Just two different styles of playing just, and, and the interesting part about how he was always, how was always against distortion. Distortion was kind of, you know, it lets you hide. Exactly. You kind of maybe fudge a little bit of a note and his stuff is so clean that you can't make a mistake. Well, that's right. It's incredibly precise. <laughs> and, and that's why he won guitar player of the year in that British poll of five or six years in a yeah. row, because a lot, you know, offense to Richie Blackmore, a lot of people could do, some what he does not everyone can do what steve does Correct. certainly not live right right but but to go back to that uh the guy taking apart the his les paul to hear him the 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 owner at the time hit those heat of the moment chords on mm -hmm. the actual guitar and that sounds pretty good i know i know it's, <laughs> it was another amazing video it's like okay so he bought a guitar so what it's like nothing you can go all through this thing and show all the differences i mean and just talking about the broad i didn't even know the story that the Telecaster was originally the broadcaster, right. and then they got in trouble. Was it Gratch or somebody like yes. that? So like, yeah, they had yeah. a drum set that was the broadcaster. Yeah, so, yeah, and so because so, television was now a big part of life or becoming a big part of life, like all right, let's call the Telecaster. Never yeah. do and that. If you, if you can, if you can find that, I think what's his name's got at least one of those John Five because he's a big Telecaster guy okay. he's got a couple at least one broadcaster from i think 1950 mm -hmm. yeah that that is like the holy grail of you know because it looks exactly the same it just instead of telecaster it says broadcaster on the top of it but it's that i i really wonder if how is is sore that he got rid of that one right well i, I think he was sore at himself for messing with it like i mean i think yeah. he got the sound he wanted out of it but to have one of those original broadcasters is there's some value to that, right? Not to yeah. mention it's kind of a piece of art almost. Mm -hmm. So he, he, and he could probably afford to go get, you know, one of the originals if he really wanted to now. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't have that book, Steve's book of his guitar. So maybe he does, but just all around fascinating. And we didn't even touch on all the fascinating parts. Only so much you can do in an hour. So right. I would encourage fans to go out and get that book because yeah. it'll be your mind will be blown at some of the detail he uncovers. And and like you said, even though it's very technical, it gets into a lot of the minutia. It is actually a very easy book to read. Yeah. It's not, it, he puts it together in a way where he gives you enough. And then he kind of tells you the story of the, of the, you know, the recording and then back to uh, the different uh, equipment. And he's got, a, he's pretty much got a chapter for all of the, the guys, you know, you've got the, guitar yeah. the the keyboards the bass and the drums, drums yeah it was it yeah it, it went by pretty fast it was very fascinating and you know we we watched the get back documentary and you think oh you know the beatles albums and then we talked about the dark side of the moon but mm -hmm. all of these records had huge amounts of production put into them and time and just the way that that it gets put together yeah i could i could have read two books on that yeah yeah, on, on, on the album that, I mean, hey, no Roger Dean art, Kill the Whale is a good song, but it's also kind of a Prozac song. I, you know, 
They're going to go around singing, don't get away. And I don't know about that. And, and it's got the odd ones on there. You know, it's like, if you want to listen to three Yes albums, I mean, I would I would almost never pick that one. Right. You know, whereas there's 10 or 12 others that I would rotate in and out. But that one, never. Well, that that's part of your problem, too. When you put out so much prolific music, you're going to have one that kind of misses with the audience. But it doesn't mean that, that you can't find interesting tracks on there. But it still went platinum in the United States, which is also kind of amazing, too. In the age of punk, with a single, it's kind of a hippie protest, Don't Kill the Whale song. Now, I know they toured the heck out of it, and that always helps. And they're playing arenas and even stadiums yeah. at, at that point. So when you've got that many people coming to see you, it's not shocking that you could sell a million copies. Right. Yeah, just on the name alone. Right. Yeah. You know, And, and you've got this killer lineup, and they toured the heck out of the U.S. on going for the one. I mean, it was like 85 dates. Something crazy like that. Maybe that wasn't all U.S., but that's more detail that's in the book, and Wondrous Stories had done well from the previous album, so maybe it's like, oh, everyone's like, yeah, we like that one. We'll pick up this one as well. Plus, I think it was like a 10-year anniversary kind of tour because, you know, their, their first album came out in 68. Oh, okay, so yeah, yeah. 10 years of yes. That probably helped because everyone's like, oh, yeah, I like some of the old stuff, and this is doing all right. Well, I'll pick that up. But, I mean, it's it's no mean feat to go platinum in America. And, right. and this one, despite any huge hits, did. our chat with Kevin Mulrine, author of The Tormato Story and co-host of the Yes Music Podcast. Super fan of Yes, obviously, and very nice guy and a very smart guy who did a lot of research on this book, folks. Like we were saying during the show, you don't have to be an enormous Yes fan to enjoy this book and to enjoy all the knowledge that it can give you about the technology of rock and roll and the instrumentation. Really a fun read. Some great graphics and pictures in there for you and can bring to your attention a, an often overlooked piece of the Yes catalog. Yeah, I mean, I got to admit that we do a lot of reviews on albums that are on their 50th or 40th or 45th or 35th anniversaries here. We like those round numbers. Tormato didn't really make our list until I saw that Kevin was doing this book. I said, you know what? We can give that record a listen and we can give him a chance to bring his book to our listeners and try to spread the word on why he loves this album so much. I mean, versus Close to the Edge, versus Tales of Topographic Oceans, versus Fragile, versus 90125. Most people overlook this one, but it's worth giving a listen, and this book is worth picking up. You know, So go check it out, whether you get it from the yesmusicpodcast.com or you get it from Amazon or wherever you have to get it. Go get it, man. Check it out and give some props to Kevin along the way because he did an amazing job researching this, reviewing this, putting all sorts of amazing detail into this book for you. And as usual, we want to know, folks, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? 
Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You have got to let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can let us know the albums, the bands, the concerts, the DVDs, the books, the rock properties that you want to hear us talk about. And, of course, you can follow us on social media. We're biggest on Twitter. It's at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. We're also on Instagram at, at Ugly American Werewolf in London. I think we're on Facebook, but not really. We have a YouTube page that you can check out. But we want you to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast, be it Apple, iTunes, Spotify. Good Pods has been very good to us. They gave us a little gold check there, and we made a cool playlist of top five classic rock podcasts that you should be listening to. And I think you'll recognize some of those names if you've been listening a long time. But wherever you go, wherever you download, subscribe, please consider giving us a positive review. It just makes a huge difference to us. It helps us find more rock and roll fans like you and help us grow the show and help get more quality guests on that you want to hear from. Thanks, as always, to Pantheon Podcast. You can check out the stable of podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. And thanks, of course, to our sponsor, rarevinyl.com, where if you use the code UGLY, you can save 10% off your order. So you want that rare first edition Yes album or something from Japan, whether it's a single or an LP or a tour poster or whatever it may be, go to rarevinyl.com, use the code UGLY, and save yourself 10%. And Burning Shed, where you can get Kevin Mulrine's book, The Tormato Story, is another great place to go for first uh, and new prog stuff. It's a great place. I bought some stuff there over the years. So check it out. Next week, we're going to have another incredible author, one that you will probably know. If you listen to this podcast, you will know the name Mick Wall. He's been a longtime music journalist. He's been doing it for decades and decades. If you ever read Kerrang! magazine, you read his stuff. If you ever read Classic Rock magazine, you read his stuff. If you ever watched a Behind the Music on VH1 over the years, if it was a hard rock band, you probably saw Mick Wall on there. He's a great guy. He's got a new book about the Eagles coming out here soon that we got an advanced copy of that's very good, and we'll be talking to him about that next time. So until the next time, to all you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. 
Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.